Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading sustainability thinkers and practitioners, scientists, economists, NGOs, business leaders and investors. We discuss the sustainability imperative, the key challenges, the latest thinking and what's working in sustainability, resilience and regeneration. If you would like a transcript of this episode, or indeed any earlier episode, please email me at fergal at the sustainabilityagenda.com. Innovation Forum is a UK-based, purpose-driven company that works in the areas of food, agriculture, land use, plastics, apparel and textiles, as well as Scope 3 GHG emissions. That means bringing together business executives with civil society groups, governments, academics and other experts to find solutions to difficult supply chain challenges. Innovation Forum does this via online meetings, research, conferences, webinars, podcasts and pre-COVID face-to-face summits. Check out their regular podcasts at innovationforum.co.uk. I'm very pleased today to welcome Gerald Butts to the podcast. Gerald is a Canadian political consultant who served as the Principal Secretary to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau from 2015 to 2019. He's currently Vice Chairman and a Senior Advisor at Eurasia Group, a political risk consultancy, and leads New Climate Group, a consultancy that advises global financial firms, educational institutions and philanthropists on strategic investments in climate mitigation and resilience and artificial intelligence. So thank you very much, Gerald, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. It's great to be here, Fergal. Thank you for having me. Yes, I'm very excited to talk to you about the work that you do and get your thoughts on uh, what I think is really a tremendously important issue, uh, the relationship uh, between uh, the whole geopolitics of climate change, uh, relationships between uh, America and China, India, Russia, and what kinds of impacts they are having on the ways in which we uh, can deal with climate change and what's at stake and and, uh, many other related questions. Uh, But before we start, uh, can you just maybe uh, introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your background and your current work focus, Gerald? Sure, I'll give you the, I'll spare you the gory details, Virgil, but I'll I'll give you a, a bit of color. Uh, I'm a Canadian, um, uh, grew up in a coal mining town in eastern Nova Scotia. My dad was a miner. I grew up in a mining family. Uh, I have worked most of my life now. It dates me a little bit, it makes me feel a little bit old, but more than 20 years on climate change in one form or another um, uh, in the private sector, the public sector. Uh, most recent, presently, I'm vice chairman of Eurasia Group, and we advise clients around the world uh, on political risk, of which climate is becoming one of the biggest. Uh, and previously, I was uh, principal secretary to the Prime Minister of Canada here, uh, CEO of WWF Canada, and uh, also principal secretary to the Premier of Ontario. So in one way, shape or form, I've been working on climate for about 20, almost 25 years. Right, right. Great. An opportunity to get a little bit of depth and, and perspective on, on, on these questions. Now, we, we, we're we facing all kinds of interlocking environmental crisis. What particular is on your mind right now, the moment we're in? There's been 
some momentum uh, on on a considerable momentum uh, on on a number of fronts. Yet these are uh, deep uh, pro- problems and issues which are are we're starting to see and 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 have the lived experience of. Well, look, I think we're living in the age of climate consequences. And one of the most uh, pernicious aspects of carbon emissions is that they persist. So we are effectively living in a climate that was created for us by uh, the industrial activity of the past uh, decades. And we're, of course, creating the next decades with our current level of activity. And I think the one of the most difficult aspects of, uh, or to date, the most difficult aspect of uh, climate change and how to inspire action to combat climate change is the time lag between um, the, the activities that cause it and the consequences of it. And we are now living in an era where the consequences are unmistakable to all those who are not conspiratorially minded. So the recent pressure that you're feeling on governments around the world to act on climate is not an accident. It's about people recognizing what they can see with their own two eyes and what they can feel when they walk out of their homes. But given that uh, and and this increasing awareness on, on multiple fronts, what, what what is it about the current moment that would worry you the most? Because so you know we're starting to see in uh, you know increasing uh, media coverage recognition willingness to accept this is happening and it clearly has been tremendous polarization in 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 America and in other countries for some time that's beginning to change everyone's getting on the same uh, page a little bit about the scale of the issues and of course uh, there's there's quite a bit of elbow shoving about you know who's who, how they frame the question and and who's got the solution and so forth. But I'm just wondering in this moment um, where you say we're living the, the consequences. What what is there anything about this that you think? Because it seems like a moment, a transitional moment. Are there things that that you keep you awake or that worry you about it? Yeah, well, I, that's a great question, Fergal. And what worries me most are the people who are least equipped to deal with the consequences of climate change are going to feel it most acutely and already are. So in poor countries between the 30s, the latitudes uh, around the equator, um, the the impacts of climate change are going to be most severe, most protracted, and deliver the most uh, um, significant change in their physical environment. And I think that, uh, well, I know that uh, um, people of uh, country, less wealthy countries are concentrated in those areas and they have fewer domestic resources to marshal in order to tackle these problems. So as usual, the most vulnerable people on earth are the ones that are going to have to deal with the downside consequences of the actions of the wealthiest people on earth. And that is going to be in really stark relief over the next few decades. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, geopolitics. Uh, so I'm interested in, in, in this question of geopolitics and climate change and, and uh, the relationships between the, you know, the most powerful uh, and, 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 and the, the largest uh, CO2 emitters. What, what, what is geopolitics? Just what, how, how do you see that? And, and how important do you think geopolitics is when it comes to dealing with, you know, global warming and, and our other environmental Questions. Well, I think it's definitional. I'm not sure there's a more important force 
uh, the history of trying to deal with climate change as an issue, uh, at least since it's become an, a, a subject of uh, deep discussion in, geopolitical, in the geopolitical arena, has been one where we thought it could be dealt with um, somewhat cooperatively through multilateral fora. This was the re the, the raison d'etre for the COP twenty the COP process itself. The thought was yeah. that we would all get together, come to come to some shared uh, solution to climate change, and then we would all go home and implement that um, a form of that policy as it made sense for our own countries. I think the most interesting dynamic that uh, we've been writing about at Eurasia Group and that I've been thinking about at least since the Paris Agreement in 2016, uh, late 2015, uh, ha has been, it's changed, right? The international political arena around climate has become yet another theater for strategic, largely economic competition where large trading blocks are now competing for one competing with one another to develop and control the supply chains that will make up the end state of the energy transition so back in coming out of the great financial crisis china was sort of the first major economy to uh re-establish traditional industrial policy with the express end to own the supply chains that would service the solar um, energy uh, um, sector, the wind energy sector, the battery and storage sectors, the rare earth mineral supply chains. Uh, somewhere in the last few years, the Europeans have sort of wake, uh, awakened to this and they've got an industrial policy of their own coming out of this crisis, which you see manifest in things like the carbon border adjustment mechanism, not to go down into the weeds too much for your listeners here for real, but it's important to recognize what our seemingly unrelated uh, economic policies are really about uh, owning the consequential nodes of the supply chain that will service the, the end state of the energy transition. And of course, I can say this as a Canadian, the um, uh, you know, the Americans are late to the table, but as usual, when they show up at the table, they're trying to take over the table, uh, which they're doing with very generous fiscal policy and the considerable weight of their diplomatic architecture. So we, I, I personally see this as a more and more competitive field geopolitically where the, um, uh, the, the core objectives of nation states are becoming aligned with uh, the core objectives of climate policy, which is a good thing for the world and probably uh, means that the energy transition will proceed faster than it otherwise would have. But it means it's gonna be a messy transition with a lot of turbulence and it's not by any means certain who ends up on top of it. Right, right. I mean, the way you frame it there is interesting because you say who ends up on top of it, because at the end of the day, we're all in it together. Uh, maybe, you know, who's on top, who's on bottom, but, you know, we're all, we're all in it. But maybe, of course, uh, if, if we're off on another planet, that may not be the case. But um, uh, what is it about, uh, what is it about geopolitics? What is geopolitics in this context? Because, you know, we've got relationships between nation states, and you've got multilateral organizations and things. What is it distinctive about geopolitics that uh, plays into this? And, and, and how do you frame or think about geopolitics? 
Well, I think it's that it's that um, elision of what a nation state considers to be its core uh, national strategic interest with the global um, move toward a lower zero carbon net zero economy. And it's, you know, it's, it's not just the present, it's the future, but it's also history that uh, countries that have been at the apex of an energy of the dominant energy system supply chain of the day have also been at the apex of the geopolitics of the era. And uh, this does not escape, this learning does not escape the attention of today's uh, heads of state and government around the world that um, I would like to think that this is a kumbaya moment where we all realize we need to mend our ways and we come together to do so in a cooperative, equally distributed fashion. But that's yes. not necessarily yes. the way the world works. In fact, it's seldom the way the world works. And I think we're, we're, um, we're not being careful students of history if we think it will change now. Yes. But so what is geopolitics as distinct from politics? What is it that's distinctive about it? It's really the the interaction between states. It's the how um, the, strate- the, the strategic interests as conceived by states, uh, self-interest as conceived by states collide on the global stage. And I think that more and more advanced and large economies are behaving in a way that they believe Uh, that seems to indicate they believe the solutions to climate change in particular, but not exclusively in the energy sector are not a, are a zero sum game that if the supply chain for solar panels that um, services, the American effort to decarbonize their electricity grid is in China, then that's a net loss for the United States. And I think the United States is, is increasingly seeing the world that way as China has for some time. And it's, of course, um, coming at a time where the structural relation, the structure of the relationship between the United States and China, which has obtained for most of my professional life, which is basically a rising tide lifts all boats and uh, developing the Chinese market is good for the American economy, that itself is changing. So there's, there's both an inertial force within the system as it exists and um, it's being reinforced by this perception that the countries that own the next low carbon energy system are going to be winners and those that don't are going to be losers. Yeah, and I suppose that's a, a little bit at the heart of the question whether the competition between you know potential who's going to win and lose uh, uh, overwhelms the, the the need for you know uh, cooperation. You know, we're facing an existential threat. Presumably, you know, collaboration is is key, um, and um, there seems to be some quite strong competitive dynamics in in, in the way you, you know um, you've been talking about it, and the way or the way that the relationships are unfolding. I mean, how, how would you assess uh, the you know Biden, the new U.S. administration's uh, stance with respect to China uh, when it comes to? Uh, uh, building relationships and cooperation uh, with respect to climate change? That's a great question. For well, I'll, I'll come to that in a second. But the, the question you're making, the, the first question you're asking, or that's implicit in what you just said about uh, which is a more desirable process to deliver the best, most efficient outcome? Is it a cooperative one or a competitive one? Uh, much 
it, it was remarked in climate circles at the time, but it went relatively unreported. That trying to balance that tension is at the heart of the Paris Agreement. So to go a little level down, the, the Paris Agreement, the heart of the Paris Agreement is uh, something called nationally determined commitments or NDCs as it's used in the argo of international climate change. The theory was that each country would go back and figure out the, the best way to meet its most aggressive target, that they would come together and share how they've done that and other countries would um, copy what successful countries had done. So it was an attempt to square that circle of being too intensely competitive um, or so intensely competitive that successes weren't shared uh, on the one hand with um, uh, being so cooperative that nobody could uh, develop an advantage through the process. And I, th I think that the Paris Accord um, was under, I said this at the time, it's gonna be underestimated uh, in the long term, how effective it will be in fighting climate change because the architecture is strong and resilient. Uh, as for the US-China dynamic, I think that this moment was inevitable that uh, in particular for the generation of leaders uh, that um, I guess we still have in the United States, uh, the people born either during or in the immediate post-war period who were accustomed to growing up in the United States where you know, the United States, uh, at least economically, was uh, had an unchallenged hegemonic position for their entire professional lives. The Soviet Union was obviously a global competitor from um, uh, a military and strategic perspective. But unlike the situation between the United States and China today, the Soviet Union was never a real economic competitor with the United States. The United States, in, in its period of ascendancy has never really had um, a commensurate economic competitor, whereas now the U.S.-China supply chain is so enmeshed and intermingled that they're very difficult to decouple. And uh, the U.S., especially that generation of leaders, as it sort of moves across and exits the stage, uh, is trying to maintain uh, the United States position at the apex of the global economy. So it's understandable that uh, a, a deep strategic economic challenge from a competitor would be treated for what it is perceived to be, and that is competition. Uh, it was inevitable, China's growth over the past 20 years, it was, it was inevitable from that, that the United States would change its posture toward China. Yeah, I mean, Biden has won uh, plaudits for his domestic policies, uh, broadly speaking, although in some cases, maybe uh, he's uh, hopes that he, he did it, he would be a little bit have more voice and, and uh, on certain fronts. But in the uh, international arena, and in particular in relationship with China, uh, some people have said it's, it's pretty much the same as business as usual. And uh, I think T Todd Stern said recently that, you know, uh, if Biden wins, that uh, you need to send the, the, the right signals to reboot climate cooperation. And as you say, there's, there's you know, uh, there's uh, you're, you're mingling cooperation and competition at the same time, uh, different dynamics. Do you, how, how do you see that uh, operating in terms of, you know, on the one hand, uh, they need to 
genuinely uh, uh, generate a cooperative uh, movement on, on climate. And yet, as you say, there are these fundamental uh, competitive economic dynamics. Well, it's, you know, that's the trillion dollar question, Fergal. I think that the Biden administration, uh, there were there were a admittedly diminishing number of people in the foreign policy establishment in the United States who thought that the more aggressive tone with China was a feature of the Trump administration that would dissipate uh, as the White House changed hands. Uh, my own view and our view at Eurasia Group was that uh, that certainly wasn't the case and that the change in the relationship is um, uh, caused by the structural forces that I just described. You know, the example that <laughs> the example that we love to use is uh, in the middle of what was maybe the most vicious presidential campaign of our lifetime. Uh, although the 2016 one would be uh, <laughs> uh, would be in the in the conversation, the United States Senate voted 100 to nothing to sanction or censure the government of China over its treatment of Hong Kong. And I would uh, challenge you to think of uh, more than a couple of things that the United States Senate could muster a 100 to nothing vote about. Uh, the United yeah. States is more polarized now than it has been since the 1850s. And um, that is a, a fundamental feature of its politics. The only thing it's seemingly that both sides of the aisle agree on, except perhaps Venezuela on the foreign policy front, is that this relationship with China needs to change. There's no agreement as to what that new relationship should look like or what the strategy to get from where we are to where we need to be ought to be. But uh, the general sentiment that things have to change and that China is more a competitor and less a collaborator is almost universally held across the aisle in Washington. Uh, very interesting. Very interesting. I mean, how in what way would you say is China a threat? Um, there seems to be, you know, uh, the G7 uh, that was, you know, uh, the US, uh, Biden was, you know, uh, certainly trying to get some of the European states and, and, and there was quite a bit of rhetoric. And, and there is generally increased rhetoric about, uh, you know, China as a threat, China, you know, what's going on in China and so forth. Um, and, 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 you know, of course, uh, you know, there are legitimate concerns and also there are, you know, uh, geopolitical and political uh, forces in play as well. I mean, what what is what do you think is 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 uh, in what ways do you think China is a threat to the kind of you know global system? Well, most importantly, I think obviously China is an autocracy. It's a non-democratic regime that routinely practices uh, that routinely um, uh, uh, practices uh, or abuses human rights, uh, practices genocide, uh, all kinds of really uh, uh, malevolent things that nobody in the Western democratic world uh, would or ought to countenance. I think that's a that's a real issue. And I think it's been diminished in the past uh, 30 years with the hope that as China became wealthier, it would become more democratic when in fact, in particular under Xi Jinping, uh, the opposite has happened. So that is from a matter of- would, would you say that, but you know, Saudi Arabia, you know, you could say the same thing. 
Yeah, sure. You can say the same thing. Uh, and I have <laughs> in the past about states like Saudi Arabia, but Saudi Arabia is not about to uh, displace the United States or nor does it threaten to displace the United States as uh, the most powerful economy in the world. So size always matters in geopolitics. And uh, that's China's practices as it grows are going to get a lot more attention than it was when than it would have uh, when I first started working on these issues way back in the early 2000s. Uh, China's economy was about the same size as Canada's. Uh, <laughs> we are living in a different world than uh, we did at the uh, turn of the millennium. So the the whole the traditional and um, important human rights, democratic norms. Uh, all that stuff is really important. Uh, but I think from a strategic perspective, there are two issues that uh, economically and from a national security perspective have, that have become increasingly fields, theaters for competition, as I was saying earlier. One is technology. And it's uh, this is something we spent a lot of time on Eurasia Group. We have what we call a geotechnology pro uh, practice that analyzes the impact of technological development on geopolitics and assesses risks, risk for firms and investors associated with those, those trend lines. And you see this, I think, most vividly lately uh, in the disputes, certainly here in Canada, in the disputes uh, about, around, and involving the executives of Huawei. Um, it's pretty clear that the Western powers were sort of caught napping on the development of 5G. There is no uh, 5G provider that's competitive with Huawei within, for instance, the Five Eyes, the uh, major cooperative Western democracies on um, national security. Uh, and China's, um, China's uh, potential to take over that supply chain and therefore become the sort of bone, the bones and uh, muscles of the internet uh, is perceived, I think, rightly, as a real national security threat in the West, but also increasingly as an economic threat as our companies become more and more digital and digital companies take over more and more of the economy. That's seen as a real threat. Uh, Tencent and um, Huawei are seen as real threats to Amazon and uh, Apple. So it's kind of natural that that competition has happened. And then, of course, the second would be climate. And I've talked a lot about that already, so I won't rehearse it. But it matters to Europe uh, whether the solar panels and um, wind turbines that are used to decarbonize the European electricity grid and uh, create clean energy is uh, uh, made in China or made in Europe. Why? Well, it's seen as a local, first and foremost, as with much of politics, it's seen as a local employment benefit. And I, I think the, the, the general, generally accepted consensus of the free trade era that a rising global tide lifts all boats and moves develop, workers in developed economies up the supply chain is um, less and less supported within those economies. And that was at the heart of what elected Donald Trump in the United States, of course. Uh, his campaign pledge was that he was going to bring back jobs from Mexico and China. Um, and I think you see a version of that in politics in Europe. Uh, we've been a little 
less vulnerable to it uh, for a variety of reasons here in Canada. But, um, you know, politics is always about what's going on in your community and what's going on in a lot of Western communities is people feel that their gainful employment has been moved elsewhere by companies that don't give a damn about them and their family. And that's, uh, you're seeing reactions to that manifest itself in politics uh, at every level from your local ward councillor up to the president of the United States. Uh, yeah, very interesting. Now, uh, John Kerry is the US, you know, representative and, 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 and uh, I don't know how to pronounce this chap's name, but he's been brought back. He's a key player in, in China in, in you know, uh, Xi Zhenhuao, is that his name? Yeah. Um, yeah but, um, and and you know they have uh, th- there's great hopes really for them and uh, being on the same page and very committed to the you know these environmental questions and um, you know notwithstanding the the, the context you painted uh, in terms of you know the competition and the economic questions that you know that that these you couldn't you couldn't really have two better people uh, and and a better you know contextual relationship or certainly a good one um, and do you worry that the the these you know economic arguments, these economic competitive arguments uh, and, and drives, and particularly coming from the United States, could undermine the the, the the climate cooperation because clearly that's the existential threat. You know, economies come and go. You know, companies come and go. They rise, they fall. You have you know success uh, they, and, and, and failure. But climate change is not like that. Climate change is building. CO two is building. It's an existential threat. Yeah, look, I, I don't disagree with that analysis at all, Virgil. I think that the um, the real issue, and in, in, in my experience and my reading of uh, uh, history, is that the people who are most successful at making big things happen are those who understand the structural forces at play and are able to marshal them in their own time and space uh, to good ends. You know, the famous Martin Luther King quote that the uh, arc of history bends toward justice. Uh, That may be true, but it doesn't bend itself. And um, the people who are able to bend it are the ones who understand their time and place best and are able to shape them. So I, all that said, uh, I'm not necessarily saying that uh, John Kerry is ill-equipped to do what he's the monumental task that has been put in front of him. I just think it shows you how much things have changed in a relatively short period of time that the process he marshaled heading into Paris between the United States and China, the so-called G2 process that delivered uh, in large part the the, uh, meat and potatoes of the Paris Agreement, that structure has changed very quickly. And it's not clear to me that... um, you know, when the United States and I was part of a team of people from around the world who tried our best to keep the United States in the Paris Agreement through the Trump years, we failed. And the the learning that most people that I know or worked with on that process in other world capitals, the most important lesson they took from that was that it happened. And uh, the world kind of started to contemplate what uh this process might look like without the united states at the head of it and once you start having those thoughts it's hard to unthink them um so i think it's just we're dealing with a different different constellation of power and a different ball game going into glasgow at cop 26 than we were in paris at cop 21. yeah i mean it's interesting that um 
uh, in, in policy circles, they do talk about this this kind of uh, polyvalent, you know, approach with competition and collaboration. Yeah. Is that unusual? Is that something you think is is possible? You know, they're, they're operating on so many different levels, you know, at the same time, and and yet, you know, uh, clearly, you know, we're talking about this key relationship. Uh, you know, between America and China in terms of dealing with with, with climate change, but um, these other dynamics. I mean, is that uh, part of the course? Is that something that you would expect? Uh, the fact that people are talking about it and and, and recognize it is is you know is presumably a positive thing. And 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 what needs to you know happen? Do you think in order for that to work smoothly? Well, look, it's often said about my home country of Canada, which I love very much, that it works better in practice than it does in theory. Uh, (laughs) That's like the French engineer. (laughs) Exactly. And I think I kind of think the same thing is true for the global process around climate change. For all of the um, for all of the sometimes justified criticisms of how interminable the process is, it did deliver a broad and resilient architecture for people and for countries and firms to develop their own um, solutions. And I think that the, I've always felt that it's the role of public policy in the public sector to set uh, important, big and broadly shared goals that you then marshal the competitive and innovative forces of the market to deliver. And I think that that's pretty much what's happened on climate change, if you take a 30,000 foot view of it, as uh, one of my political mentors would often say, that, uh, look, I'll tell you, this is a funny story, it dates me a little bit, but uh, I went to to McGill University and I was in the first undergraduate class where everybody in the class was given an email address. And uh, about 15 years later, my infant son's, or I guess my toddler son's, uh, eighth or ninth word was BlackBerry. <laughs> the world can change really, really quickly. And when you sort of take a step back and look at the development of climate change as a global issue of concern, while lots of people tried to put it on the radar screen much earlier, uh, sometimes famously so, uh, in retrospect, anyway, it was really the release of an inconvenient truth by Al Gore that made this a public issue of concern. And that was only, what, 2007, I believe. Um, so we're in early days and we've come a very, very long way to the point where most of the global economy has set a mid-century net zero target. Uh, had you told me, uh, to take a, an equally important example, had you told me even one election cycle ago, that the successful candidate for the presidency would say in a nationally televised debate in Pennsylvania that his strategic economic objective was to transition the American economy away from fossil fuels, I would have thought, I would have said, you're reading the opening chapter of a bright-eyed science fiction novel. But that actually happened. Joe Biden said that in Pennsylvania, and he won not only the presidency, but the state of Pennsylvania. So I, I'm I'm an optimist. I'm a skeptical optimist, to say the least, but I'm an optimist about how far we've come. And I'm an optimist about uh, human beings and our capacity to apprehend the problems in our environment and fix them. 
Yeah, very interesting. You, you said something there, you talk about market-led, um, and I'm interested in, in that because um, China has not been market-led. It's, it's obviously had you know some parts of the market that's incorporated strategically. And um, clearly in COVID, we have had a, a, a significant change of orientation in how we see the roles of government. Um, how that plays out over time is, is, is another question. Um, but there does seem to be some, uh, I guess, winds of change around this, this question of the role of governments. And, and, and particularly, uh, you know, uh, in, in this kind of Me Too uh, Belt and Road uh, uh, initiative, um, you know, where, where, where the G7 were told we're going to, you know, uh, do another version of this, you know, uh, uh, what the Chinese have been doing. Um, but it it, it kind of suggests a, a a a less certainly a less market oriented, uh, a stronger role for government, and uh, it's, it's it's a rather different picture from from what might have been, you know, I, I guess is the N word that's overused, but the neoliberal, but you know, the the, the market led and market driven. Uh, approaches. Where do you think that's going, Gerald? I, I think you've got the trajectory described pretty well there. For all I think that we're going to look back on the kind of Reagan to uh, Reagan Thatcher to uh, maybe 9/11 era as one of excessive uh, market puritanism. In my point, in my view, I think the the Milton Friedman um, shareholder economy philosophy was one that was historically kind of at a place, you know, the, the, as I'm sure, you know, there's, um, one of the most important trends in the market these days is ESG investing. Uh, but, and, and it's treated as if it's a new thing, but the truth is using market means to achieve social ends is as old as the market itself. And if you go back to, uh, the anti-slavery movement, for instance, a lot of that was finance-driven, including, importantly, by the Quakers. So it's got a long, long heritage. And I think that uh, the 1970s and the reactionary right-wing governments that came out of those were just that. They were a reaction to what was perceived to be an overcorrection in favor of the state in the preceding years. And that's the way politics works when you analyze it from a structural perspective. I think that certainly when I was active in politics, the environment that we were uh, dealing, we were living in uh, and we were dealing with was one where the basic promise of the mid 1990s broadly shared uh, economic consensus, which was cut taxes, balance budgets, uh, invest in infrastructure and a tide will come along to lift all boats and free trade. Most importantly, a tide will come along to lift all boats turned out to not be true um, in particular, but not exclusively in the United States, where income inequality uh, skyrocketed, where uh, wealthy people got super wealthy and the middle class got basically nowhere uh, for 30 years. That's what generated the politics we're living in now. And it's natural that the people who are coming onto the scene in this day and age have a very different perspective than those who were weaned on Reagan and Thatcher in the eighties. Yes. Um, I have, uh, young children, uh, not <laughs> children, but young, young, young adults, uh, children who are, uh, you know, they're very committed and engaged and, you know, you can see this new, new waves of, of energy and, and ways of seeing things, um, and it, which, which is, yeah. which is a sort of great optimism as well. Yeah. And I, I think that's uh, eternal return, right. That, um, 
you know, when I, a million years ago, when I was born in the summer of 1971, uh, there were about three and a half billion people on earth. And uh, my kids are soon to be 14, about 13 and a half, a little more than 13 and a half and 15. So they're right in the middle of Gen Z. And Gen Z is about 3 billion people alone. Uh, 90% of them are in emerging markets. And that's, by the way, why things like TikTok and K-pop are so popular, by the way. Uh, <laughs> these things don't come from any from nowhere. Um, they have a much different attitude toward all of this stuff than even I, as a proud member of Gen X, did. It's uh, uh, and, and no wonder. They've got a lot of skin in the game. When you look at those difficult 50 years that we've already baked into the atmosphere, it's their lifetime. And uh, they, of course, they, of course, are more concerned about that than they are about uh, well, what they would consider the relatively transitory politics of our youth. Yes. TikTok? What's that? No. <laughs> <laughs> no. Okay. So we, we focused quite a bit on, on the US-China uh, relationship and so forth. What about uh, other, I mean, just looking at it through a climate lens as well, India, huge emitter, huge developmental questions, challenges. And I guess the other one, longstanding, Russia. Anything interesting to say about that in terms from a geopolitical lens, in terms of you know, trying to uh, get consensus and action on, 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 on uh, missions? Well, in both cases, I think India's, India's uh, they're both super interesting. India is really interesting because it's the big uh, carbon-based, uh, carbon-heavy economy in Asia that is relatively permeable by outside forces. You know, China's number one domestic strategic objective is to be self-sufficient and to render itself, at least this is Xi Jinping's, to render itself absolutely impermeable to external influence. Uh, whereas India, which has very quiet, has quietly uh, tripled the amount of the electricity it generates from coal this century, uh, the math doesn't really work very well uh, if that trend line continues unabated. So there's lots of really interesting activity, both bilaterally between the United States and India and multilaterally. And maybe this is where multilateralism finds its legs in regional, um, big regional strategic objectives like the decarbonization of the Indian electricity grid. India does not have the domestic capital to do that, but some creative mix of commercial and concessionary capital could, and the United States and its allies are certainly hard at work to try and deliver that. Uh, Russia, you know, Russia is a very interesting place. It's uh, uh, always has been, <laughs> but uh, it's, you know, it's a hundred, it's more than a uh, hundred degrees in the Russian Arctic. Uh, there are lots of people who uh, believe that Russia is relatively impermeable to uh, these forces, but I'm not one who believes that. I think that uh, Russians are people just like all other people. Uh, they can be tougher, but they are definitely people and um, they're gonna generate the same kinds of concerns that people elsewhere are. Their system is relatively calcified compared to other more robust Western democratic systems. And Putin has certainly delighted in being a climate denier and in trolling those who um, were in favor of more aggressive climate action over the past 20 years. But even in his recent pronouncements, at least he feel it's the first step that 
he feels he needs to show concern for the issue, uh, whether that whether he's able to or his way of doing business is able to generate any real action is an open question. But look, nobody stands to. There are few countries in the world uh, that will be changed more dramatically by climate change than will Russia. For sure. Although I, I, I saw uh, somebody researching recently uh, capital cities and Moscow, I think, is safe. <laughs> yeah. But um, no, uh, very interesting indeed. Um, now, uh, the G7, which just took place, were, were you impressed with the level of commitment to dealing with climate change? And I'm wondering whether you could talk a little bit about uh, the multilateral climate change regime. I mean, we've got the IPCC, sure. we've got the Paris Agreement, some are legal, some are not. Um, and what about a new, uh, <laughs> trying to throw in a lot here with the kitchen sink, uh, a new climate Bretton Woods, you know, some global institution, because a lot of this comes out of, you know, parts of the UN and, the, you know, there's a kind of hybrids of, of various kinds. Well, I, there's a lot in there, uh, but let me try and address all of it for all. The, the, uh, in, in, sorry, this <laughs> the G7 having sat through, I think, four of them, three with Donald Trump and one with Barack Obama, um, or maybe three, two, two and one of each. I can't remember now. Uh, it's just refreshing that the G7 is operating like a unit uh, for the first time since before Donald Trump was elected and that one of the top agenda items of that team uh, is climate change. And I think that um, the UK's leadership on this is welcome and should be applauded, uh, but it's a broadly shared consensus viewpoint around the G7 table. I think if anything in Germany, you're going to get a more climate uh, forward government uh, replacing or succeeding Angela Merkel's uh, government in Germany in the fall. Um, so I think the G7, it's, it's a welcome and hopefully permanent thing that this is on the G7 agenda. Uh, I think the IPCC is working as well as any uh, UN sanctioned agency ever, ever UN sanctioned process ever has. Uh, and I mean that more positively than it sounds. Uh, I think the Paris Agreement, I'm not unbiased in this, but the Paris Agreement was an extremely positive step forward and we'll see more progress in Glasgow. And as far as the kind of, will there be a climate Bretton Woods? I think it's slowly happening uh, without much fanfare that I doubt we'll see a new climate version of the IMF or the World Bank. But what we will see is climate increasingly being taken up by those institutions as a foundational um, uh, part of the way they do business. And you certainly already see this in the IMF. I mean, you even see it in the International Energy Agency these days, which for those of your listeners who may know the history of the IEA is itself a really remarkable thing. So I think that instead of seeing some sort of supra uh, national agency devoted to climate change, uh, like you've seen in some relatively recent and excellent science fiction, uh, I think you're gonna see climate change itself be absorbed as a core um, part of the identity of existing institutions. Right, very interesting, John. Um, uh, geopolitics obviously is a kind of a level above politics and, and national politics. Um, I, I, I recently asked, uh, well, I came across a quote which I thought was quite fascinating and it was, uh, 
a European politician who said that the future of Europe was a, a, you know, a leading ecological civilization. And uh, I asked people who, who who made that quote and who said that, that and uh, uh, nobody gets it. I, I wouldn't get it either, but it happens to be Marie Le Pen. Um, so, you know, um, we've moved beyond this kind of polarity of, you know, is it happening? Is it not happening? And, and you know, the consensus now is happening and people are trying to frame what that means and how to respond and who's going to come up with solutions and so forth. Um, can you maybe just finally uh talk a little bit about what domestic politics look like obviously it, it varies from country to country but um you know there is a version which you know i suppose once upon a time one thought that what if, if one believes that climate changes you know is is you know we're creating this and so forth that you might get some kind of progressive vision of, of of change and so forth but maybe that's not the case you get versions which are about you know stopping immigration and and getting energy independence and and, and that kind of thing um you know you you set the scene very clearly in terms of the some of the drivers of the populist uh, political scene. Uh, wh- what are some of the factors that would influence? Do you think how that this might play out domestically in in key countries? Oh, that's a good. That's a really good question. I think it's hard to generalize, but let me do it anyway. Um, <laughs> the the I can't remember how many steps there are, but it's like stages of grief, and one of those yeah. one of those yeah. one of those stages is negotiation. And I yeah, think, six stages, I think, but yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, and I think in most countries, we're still at the negotiation stage. Uh, in uh, Canada, we're um, trying to figure out a way to keep, uh, in this century, we doubled our oil and gas output, uh, and we're trying to figure out a way where we can keep doing that, uh, keep growing that sector while meeting our climate targets. Uh, in the United States, they're trying to figure out a way to turn this into a new um, great state competition uh, like the Cold War. If you read uh, Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State's truly remarkable last couple of speeches on this, you could replace the words climate with Soviet menace and uh, or communism. <laughs> and um, it would pretty much be a speech that uh, Alexander Haig could have given. So it's, you know, I think each country is trying to wrestle with this issue in a way that almost, I mean, this almost literally that they're translating for a domestic audience. Um, but I, I think what has changed and it's changed rapidly is the degree to which the leadership of almost every country is seized with the magnitude of the issue. Um, and hopefully we get to a resolution in the most important places. And by important, I don't, I'm not making a normative judgment among states. I'm just saying uh, countries that emit the most. Uh, we get to a resolution where we can um, uh, decarbonize the global economy as rapidly as possible with uh, uh, out hurting the people who are going to be displaced by that dislocation. Yeah, but very interesting. I just can't help asking this final question. Um, it just occurred to me, um, you know, uh, in in many ways, uh, the role of corporations is problematic in in terms of the the generation of of uh, carbon emissions, and you know, situated in, in in a particular moment of capitalism and economic growth and so forth. And yet, at the same time, um, we're talking about the the, the 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 realization of political leaders and so forth. But is 
are political structures fit for purpose? You know, to what extent, you know, it's it's surprising that some of the you know, leading corporations are actually taking real action and committed. Not 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 that many and 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 there's a tremendous amount of greenwashing. But you know, in some ways they they, they are quite responsive because you know uh, consumer action, uh climate activists, those kind of things. And and yet you know, political structures, you see this in the UK, you know, <laughs> voting in, you know, a government for, you know, four or five years. They're not really, a lot of, you know, the political structures and governments aren't that responsive. Well, look, I I think that, um, you know, climate change can be a bit of a Rorschach test, right? It is, we are all susceptible to confirmation bias. Um, so when we see big problems, we the most comfortable thing for humans to do, and it's usually as wrong as it is comfortable, is to take that big problem and use it as evidence of why we've been right about everything all along, right? <laughs> and, yes. And it's an incredibly powerful, natural, cognitive instinct that is vital to resist. And I think that those who see climate change as, uh, um, you know, a necessary and logical outcome of market-based economies are not right. I think they're wrong. And one of the the key proof points I use for this all the time is that uh, for all the demonization of the oil and gas, the private super majors in the oil and gas industry, 80% of the world's oil is produced by governments, right? Um, we have fancy architecture to distance the companies that actually do the production from the governments who own them. But at the end of the day, Aramco is Saudi Arabia. And uh, the same is true of Pemex. And uh, the same is true of all other state-owned oil and gas producers. So it's not a market force. It's a government uh, at the most charitable charitable definition is a public-private partnership, and that's not really true either. So I, I just I think that climate uh, it doesn't it it explodes these easy categories of thinking, and it's a very wicked problem in the true sense of the word that it's important and very difficult to solve. Um, but at, it, at the end of the day, it's also a very simple problem that carbon used to be for most of, uh, well, for all of human history and for most of the world's history, carbon used to be in a safe place buried underground. And we've spent the last 20, last 200, but in particular in the last 50 years, taking it from a safe place and putting it in unsafe places. And uh, the job of our lifetime and to those unfortunately coming behind us are, is to take it from unsafe, to stop putting it in unsafe places and to take it from the unsafe places we put it and put it back into a safe place. And I know that sounds like a gross over oversimplification, but at the end of the day, too many people take theology textbooks to climate and it's really math class. It's fascinating that you say that. And at the very end of our interview, because really, if you unpack it a little bit, and this is something maybe for another discussion, you know, it you can't escape the great acceleration. You can't escape the ideas that are embedded in capitalism of 
endless economic growth. And, you know, of course, you can look at it in terms of carbon calculus and mathematics. But fundamentally, if you've got a global economy based on endless growth, which is driven by corporations who are, you know, driven by growth and maximizing shareholders' returns, you know, you have to look at those questions as well. Yeah, I think you do. But I think I also know that in uh, my professional lifetime, lots of big developed economies have proven that you can decouple economic growth with uh, carbon growth. And that's uh, no yes, well, that's a, that's a whole other question of relative and absolute decoupling. <laughs> but no, fascinating, uh, really very interesting. And and, and thank you. I, I, I'm really uh, grateful to have your an opportunity to talk to you and, and get these perspectives. And as you say, so w- these are wicked problems, and we could weave and um, try and unpack them uh, over time. But it's been fascinating to get your perspective on 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 the geopolitical aspects. And uh, I'd love to talk to you again about some of these other questions, <laughs> Gerald. That would be great for Glenn. It's been a real honor and pleasure to be with you. Thank you. If you enjoyed this interview, we think you'll enjoy Cambridge geographer Mike Hume's new book, Climate Change. In Climate Change, Hume makes a powerful case that the power of climate change as an idea can only be grasped from a vantage point that embraces the social sciences, humanities and natural sciences. The book synthesizes Hume's career work on climate change. In 10 carefully crafted chapters, he presents climate change as an idea with a past, a present and a future, and illustrates the different ways political, social and cultural movements in today's world seek to make sense of it and how they act accordingly. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.